Well, good morning, Calvary family. I want to greet you in the name of the Lord. And uh, before we get into the message this morning, I just want to share a couple photos I actually received this morning from uh, my friends in Ukraine. Uh, last, though, probably week or so, um, uh, the Russians have been uh, sending 20, 25 cruise missiles, drones, ballistic rockets uh, to Odessa, which if some of you don't know, uh, my family and I lived uh, in the Odessa area for uh, for about 15 years, and so I have a lot of dear friends there. Uh, the picture on the left is a, a landmark, uh, a very famous Orthodox church in the center of the city, of the, cent- uh, the center of the city, and uh, the fact that the Russians would target an Orthodox church uh, really shows how far they're willing to go. I have I don't know if it's an advantage or disadvantage, uh, the you know, disadvantage of being fluent in Russian, and so I can listen to Russian state TV, and uh, there they are openly calling for the use of nuclear weapons against Ukrainian cities, and so um, they are just crossing every imaginable um, barrier of morality and humanity, and um, obviously it's hitting very close to what was our home and uh, to those who are still there. Uh, the picture on the right is actually uh, my good friend Ruslan, uh, Pastor Ruslan, whom our church has come alongside and partnered with in church planning. Uh, this is uh, the window of their church building, which was blown out by one of the blast waves, so you can see how close it's getting to uh, where they actually worship. That happened last night. They had church this morning. Let me ask you a question. If a missile blast had been close enough to break the windows of this church, would you be here still this morning? Their mentality is, hey, the closer death gets, the more we want to be in church to pray, to worship, and to hear the word of, the, of, of God. What, you know, if you're going to get taken out by a missile, best place to do it is in church, right? <laughs> so during uh, the services, this also happened just this morning, their time, so eight hours ago or so. Uh, that's uh, Pastor Ruslan and then uh, the pastor of a large church in the Odessa area uh, ordaining uh, one of the church planters that uh, this congregation has facilitated. Uh, that young couple, um, we've come alongside and uh, both in terms of providing the facility and trying to help them out. And uh, so uh, missile strike at night, ordination in the morning, work of the gospel goes forward, right? What people intend for evil, God uses for good, and I continue to hear from a number of churches. A, a friend of mine actually was just ordained uh, in a, a village church, and this uh, church has been tiny for many, many years, uh, but uh, as they were ordaining him, uh, they, they shared that uh, that church has over 60 people in it now, which is just incredible because it's a tiny, tiny little village. And um, so the Lord is bringing uh, large numbers of people to faith in Christ. And um, again, what man intends for evil, God uses for good. Well, I want to invite you to uh, open uh, to the book of Isaiah. Uh, We're continuing our study of the fifth section of the book, which begins in chapter 28 and ends in chapter 35. We've been in this section for four weeks. We're going to finish this morning, uh, as I always need to add, Lord willing. I, I did finish in the first service, so that's a good sign. And if you remember, I've entitled this section Woes and Wonders, Judgments and Joys because it contains both. It contains both warnings of woe and great promises of wonder. It contains both judgment and joys, and it is organized around six warnings of woe, but intermixed with them are some glorious messianic promises, promises of grace. And so we've been studying those warnings of woe and then looking at the Lord's 
um, the Lord's grace manifested in the midst of the rebellion of the people. So if you've been following along, we've seen the woe to the drunkards in chapter 28, the woe to those who are spiritually apathetic in chapter 29, woe to those who live a double life in chapter 29, verse 15, and then woe to rebellious children in chapter 30, and woe to those who trust in human power in chapter 31. And we left off towards the end of that fifth section in chapters 31 and 32. If you remember last time, We talked about the danger of relying upon human power, of relying on numbers and strength instead of trusting the Lord. Isaiah 31.1 says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. In other words, they were relying on human power because they saw the Egyptians had numbers and the Egyptians had power but verse 31 says however they do not look to the holy one of israel nor seek the lord there is a danger in relying on human numbers and human power isaiah is warning israel that no matter how many allies they have on their side and no matter how strong those allies are they are a false hope for deliverance because only god can protect them in fact If you remember from chapter 10, he said that this invasion is coming as discipline from the Lord. Do you think the Egyptians are going to be able to rescue you from the Lord's discipline? No. The only one who can rescue you is the Lord. You need to repent and then he will protect you. He will turn aside from this discipline. Under the Mosaic Covenant one of the blessings of obedience was divine protection from Israel's enemies. But, under the Mosaic Covenant, one of the consequences of disobedience was said to be invasion and defeat. The Lord had told them this way back at Sinai during the Exodus. And what I'm going to show you is that Isaiah is essentially preaching a message based on Leviticus chapter 26. So I want to invite you to turn there to Leviticus chapter 26. And we're going to see what the Lord had told the nation way back in the time of the Exodus at Sinai. Leviticus chapter 26. And we're going to see how the Mosaic Covenant promises protection if they obey and invasion and defeat if they don't. So look at Leviticus chapter 26. We're going to begin in verse 1, kind of make our way through the chapter. And in verses 1 through 13, God gives the people a promise of prosperity, protection, and peace if they will obey. Look at Leviticus 26.1. You shall not make for yourselves idols, nor shall you set up for yourselves an image or a sacred pillar, nor shall you place a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, Then I shall give you rains in their season so that the land will yield its produce and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. Indeed, your threshing will last for you until grape gathering and grape gathering will last until sowing time. You will thus eat your food to the full and live securely in your land. I shall also grant peace in the land so that you may lie down with no one making you tremble. I shall also eliminate harmful beasts from the land and no sword will pass through your land. 
but you will chase your enemies, and they will fall before you by the sword. Five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. So I will turn toward you and make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will confirm my covenant with you. You will eat the old supply and clear out the old because of the new. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you would not be their slaves, and I broke the bars of your yoke and made you stand up straight. So in this section of Leviticus 26, God gives the people a promise of peace, of prosperity, and of protection if they will obey his commandments. But notice what is said in the next section in verses 14 through 39. In the next section, God then warns the people that they will be destitute and demoralized and defeated if they disobey. Look at Leviticus 26 verse 14. But if you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commandments, if instead you reject my statutes and if your soul abhors my ordinances so as to not carry out all my commandments and so break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption and fever that will waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. Also you will sow your seed uselessly for your enemies will eat it up. And then skip down to uh, verse, uh, verse 36. As for those of you who may be left, I will also bring weakness into their hearts in the hands of their enemy, in the lands of their enemies. And the sound of a driven leaf will chase them. And even when no one is pursuing, they will flee as though from the sword and they will fall. They will therefore stumble over each other as if running from the sword, though no one is pursuing. And you will have no strength to stand up before your enemies, but you will perish among the nations and your enemy's land will consume you. So those of you who may be left will rot away because of their iniquity in the lands of your enemies and also because of the iniquities of their forefathers. They will rot away with them. This is a strong warning. So if you obey, you're going to have peace and prosperity and protection. But if you disobey, you will be destitute. You will be so demoralized, you'll run away at the sound of a blowing leaf in the wind and you will be defeated. You'll be taken into exile and you will serve other masters. These are strong warnings. But then I want you to notice how Leviticus chapter 26 ends. Look at verse 40. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers in their unfaithfulness which they committed against me and also in their acting with hostility against me, I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they then make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham as well and I will remember the land for the land will be abandoned by them and will make up for, the sab- for its Sabbaths while it is made desolate without them. They meanwhile will be making amends for their iniquity because they rejected my ordinances and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet in spite of this, When they are in the land of their enemies, 
I will not reject them, nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. So, blessings of peace, prosperity, and protection if they obey, warnings of being destitute and demoralized and defeated if they disobey, but then at the end a reminder that God will be faithful to the covenant he made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So keep in mind, God makes a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that covenant is an unconditional covenant. It's a unilateral promise that God makes which doesn't depend on anything from man. And he promises Abraham land, the promised land, seed, meaning descendants, from whom the Messiah will come, and then blessing. And he says that all the world, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And God is saying here, I am going to keep that promise regardless of what the nation does because it's a unilateral promise. Now, when God brings the nation out of the land of Egypt and he brings them to Sinai, he then makes a judicial covenant with them, a covenant for the nation, laws for the nation, and that covenant was bilateral, what we call the Mosaic Covenant. This is one where God gives his laws and Exodus says that they all stood at the mountain and all of the elders of the people and all the people said, all that the Lord has commanded, we will do. And so God promised and they promised and so those promises were conditional. You had blessing if you obeyed, you had consequences if you disobeyed. And so Isaiah is telling them the consequences of the Mosaic Covenant are going to come upon you. You've made idols, you've disobeyed the Lord, and so defeat and invasion and all of those consequences are going to come upon you. But in the midst, back in Leviticus 26, and repeated as we're going to see in Isaiah, is this promise. However, the Lord, as it says in Leviticus 26, verse 44, in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them, because that would be, he says, breaking my covenant with them, and I am Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, who is the Lord. He says, I will remember for their sake the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. So, Leviticus 26 ends with hope and it is hope based upon the unilateral unconditional promise God made to Abraham. Now this is a significant truth and it's repeated throughout the Old Testament and the New. For example, in Joshua 23, if you want to turn there, listen to what Joshua tells the people right before he dies. Joshua 23, verses 6 through 16. Joshua tells them, be very firm then, to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, right? So referring to that bilateral agreement they made with God. Be firm then to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses so that you may not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left so that you will not associate with these nations, these which remain among you, or mention the name of their gods or make anyone swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. But you are to cling to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. 
For the Lord has driven out great and strong nations from before you. And as for you, no man has stood before you to this day. One of your men puts to flight a thousand. Now, how could one Israelite soldier put to flight a thousand enemies? Because they were super soldiers? No. He says, For the Lord has driven out great and strong nations before you. And as for you, no man has stood before you to this day. One of your men puts to flight a thousand. For the Lord your God is he who fights for you, just as he promised you. And Joshua is citing Leviticus chapter 26. And by the way, David also cites this promise when he stands against Goliath and the Philistines. So Joshua exhorts them. Verse 11. So take heed, take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. For if you ever go back and cling to the rest of these nations, these which remain among you, and intermarry with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know with certainty that the Lord your God will not continue to drive these nations out from before you, but they will be a snare and a trap to you and a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Now behold, today I am going the way of all the earth, and you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. It shall come about that just as all the good words which the Lord your God spoke to you have come upon you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the threats until he has destroyed you from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you when you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God which he commanded you and go and serve other gods and bow down to them then the anger of the Lord will burn against you and you will perish quickly from off the good land which he has given you God is a promise keeping God isn't that a wonderful truth but Joshua reminds them just as not one of the good words has failed all have been fulfilled so also all of the threats and all of the warnings also will be fulfilled so as it says in Deuteronomy choose this day whom you will serve right and choose life that you may live so this protection that is given as a blessing of obedience is a key part of the Old Testament teaching and so I want to turn have you turn back now to Isaiah chapter 30 And I want you to see how Leviticus 26 is cited in a key passage there. Look back at chapter 30, verses 15 through 17. And remember, Leviticus 26 promises that a few Israelites would defeat many enemies if they obeyed, but that many Israelites would be defeated defeated by just a few enemies if they disobeyed. And that promise is cited in Isaiah chapter 30, verses 15 through 17. For thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, In repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you are not willing. And you said, No, for we will flee on horses, therefore you shall flee. And we will ride on swift horses, therefore those who pursue you shall be swift. One thousand will flee at the threat of one man. You will flee at the threat of five until you are left as a flag on a mountaintop and as a signal on a hill. This is the flag on a mountaintop, the signal on a hill. When an enemy was defeated and they all just ran away, eventually one of them would climb up on a mountaintop and kind of wave a flag so that all the stragglers could kind of try to regather and try to make it back home. 
And Isaiah is saying that since they have disobeyed against God, they have become idol worshipers, they've disobeyed the commandments of God, since they have refused to repent and refused to trust in him, since they've turned to Egypt, the very nation that God brought them out of in order to serve him, since they have rejected the Lord, the warnings of Leviticus chapter 26 were about to come true in the form of the Assyrian invasion. However, Isaiah, as he is essentially preaching an inspired message on Leviticus 26, ends with a message of hope, just like Leviticus chapter 26 does. Hope of restoration, hope of deliverance. And we ended last time with the prophecy of divine deliverance, which occurs at the end of chapter 31, verses 6 through 9. If you remember it, it says, Return to him from whom you have deeply defected, O sons of Israel. For in that day every man will cast away his silver idols and his gold idols, which your sinful hands have made for you as a sin, and the Assyrian will fall by a sword not of man, and a sword not of man will devour him, so he will not escape the sword. Look, turn back from your defection against God, put your trust in him, and he will deliver you. It won't be a sword of man that saves you from the Assyrians. It will be the hand of God. I want to point out one more thing, though, in this passage. When it says, return to him from whom you have deeply defected. It says, in that day, every man will cast away his silver idols and his gold idols, which your sinful hands have made for you as a sin. Now, this phrase may sound a little strange for you. Your sinful hands made for you as a sin. What is this saying? Well, it's saying something that is taught throughout Scripture, which is that human beings are sinners both by nature and by choice. Your sinful hands make a sin. Who you are has resulted in what you've done. You are a sinner by nature and you are a sinner by choice. This is taught throughout Scripture. Scripture teaches a doctrine which is called total depravity. Now, total depravity doesn't mean that every single thing anyone ever does is bad. What it means is that there is no part of human nature which isn't fallen. Your immaterial being, your soul, is fallen. Your body, your flesh, your physical being is fallen. You are fallen in body, soul, and spirit. There is no part of you that has been unaffected by the fall. You are a sinner by nature and you are a sinner by choice. This, by the way, is something that we need to help people to understand today. Because in today's day, and even in the church, people have said, look, if someone, if there is a spiritual cause for an evil action, then the person is culpable and guilty. But if the desire or action comes from their body and they do something that Scripture says is evil, that's not their fault. They can't be held responsible for that. I want you to just remind you something very simple. It's so on the surface of the New Testament. What does the New Testament says? It talks about the wicked deeds of the flesh. The flesh. It is not just wicked deeds which come exclusively from your spirit that are evil. Also, wicked deeds which have a biological cause which come from the fallenness of your body, the wickedness of your flesh, that also is evil. Our problem goes a lot deeper than just our soul. 
Why does the scripture say that we long for the redemption of our bodies? Because we are fallen, both in body and in soul. Our sinful hands make for us a sin. Our nature causes us to sin. And this, by the way, is why the scripture teaches that we are helpless to save ourselves. You know, if your if if soul was fallen, but your body was perfect and noble and neutral and even good, maybe your physical body could somehow overcome your spirit and you could save yourself. Or if your body was fallen, but your spirit was noble and good and righteous, maybe your spirit could overcome your body and you could save yourself. But if your immaterial being and your material being are all corrupted and fallen, you cannot save yourself. This is why the scripture says, can a leopard change his spots? Can a leopard change his spots? Neither can you. You need to be saved. You need to be transformed by the grace of God. You need a righteousness not of your own. You need a transformation that you can't generate from either your body or your soul. You need to be saved. Your sinful hands make for you a sin over and over and over again. Sinful in nature and sinful in body. I've often used the illustration that not every spider that you've ever seen has actually bit you. But they all share the nature of spiders and of course in the right circumstances given the opportunity they all would bite, wouldn't they? And that's us. By nature we're sinners and we've confirmed that by choices. Our sinful hands have made sin and so we have ratified Adam's fall and we have joined in the rebellion we have become as Jesus said he said to the people he said you are of your father the devil and therefore you want to do the deeds of your father you have his nature now fallen in body and soul and so why do we need Christ because only he the son of God who came in the flesh and died bodily for us can save us in body and soul and why do we as believers look forward to, the, to when we will see the Lord? Because when we see him, we will become like him, for we will see him as he is. It says that this corruption of this body will be gloriously transformed. We will have a resurrection body like that of Christ, and you will no longer have any lusts of the flesh. You will no longer have any sinful desires of the flesh or of the mind. All right. I was somewhere in Isaiah. <laughs> Boy, that was there's a little white space between one point and the next and uh, had a little bit more in there than I thought <laughs> the point though being made here in Isaiah 31 and 32 is that God alone can save God alone can save And at the end of chapter 31, God says, look, the Assyrians are going to be defeated, but it's not going to be a hand of man who does it. It's going to be my hand. That prophecy is, we'll see in the future when we study Isaiah 37, verses 36 through 37, was fulfilled during the time of King Hezekiah. But I want you to notice then, as we go to chapter 32, 
that chapter 32 moves from the near-term deliverance from the Assyrians in the time of Isaiah to giving us a prophecy about the kingdom of the Messiah in the end times. And if you remember, I've said that oftentimes the prophets, the Lord is showing them the future and it's like standing on a mountaintop. I'm from Colorado, so I love this illustration, right? You stand on the mountaintop and you're seeing the mountain ranges and you can see the nearby ones and you can see the far ones and you kind of look in this direction and then you look over here and there's another mountain range and another mountain range and and the Old Testament prophecies are like that. Certain passages are describing the far mountains. Certain passages are describing the near mountains and and the prophet is kind of saying, look here what God's gonna do and look here what's going to do and so sometimes the passage moves from the end times fulfillment to a near time fulfillment and then back to a far time fulfillment and that's what is happening here in chapter 32 verse 1 it says behold a king will reign righteously well what king what is he talking about well we got to remember the context Isaiah chapter 9 a son is going to be given to us a child is going to be born of a virgin and he will be the prince of peace and the government will be on his shoulders and his kingdom will never end that is the coming messianic king and in context that is the king that Isaiah keeps coming back to he keeps saying the nation is in rebellion all of these things are coming but a king is coming the king is coming the messianic king is coming and listen to what he will do Behold, a king will reign righteously and princes will rule justly. Well, it's not hard to figure out that the king who reigns righteously is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, but who are the princes? That's what I asked when I read this. I was like, you know, I know who the king is, but who are the princes who are going to rule justly? Well, let's let the king answer who his princes will be. Turn to Matthew chapter 19 verses 27 through 28. Matthew chapter 19, verses 27 through 28. Then Peter said to him, that is Jesus, behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that you who have followed me In the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus talks about this several times during his ministry. Turn over to Luke chapter 22, where he talks about this same thing at the Last Supper. And remember, he's speaking to men who knew the Isaiah prophecy from Isaiah chapter 32 verse 1 that the king will reign righteously and there will be princes who judge justly as assistance to that king and in Luke chapter 22 verses 28 and 30 at the last supper this is important enough for the Lord to teach on at the last supper he says you are those who have stood by me in my trials and just as my father has granted me a kingdom I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So who are the Messiah's princes? They are the apostles. They are the apostles. Why are they called princes? Why are they called princes? I mean, don't you have to be a biological son of the king in order to be called a prince? Well, first of all, I want to encourage you not to import Disney definitions into your biblical terminology, right? Um, you know, you know, the Disney movies don't determine how the word prince was used in the ancient world. 
And in the ancient world, the term prince was a much broader term. It referred not only to the biological children of the king, but to nobles who had been granted a certain status by the king and certain, certain regal authority or, or kingly authority. So the term princes, when you see it in the Old Testament, is a much broader term than just the relatives of the king. But in one sense... We could take this term princes even as referring to them being sons of the king because just like you and I, the apostles had received the adoption as sons by grace through faith. John 1, 12 and 13 says this, but as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the apostles had received the adoption as sons. And Jesus says, I have been granted a kingdom, and I now grant to you to sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel in fulfillment of Isaiah 32.1 and many, many other Old Testament prophecies. So the princes who will rule justly are the apostles. Can I just tell you, look, all of us, I, I don't care what your political you know, perspectives are and what all your opinions are, but everybody has some frustration about government, right? I mean, it's always has been that way, always will be that way. We all experience some frustrations about government. Can I just tell you something? There is coming a day in which the government, the, I, I just want to repeat that, the government will be perfect. Yeah, yeah. There will be a perfect government. But the perfect government is the one where Christ is king and the apostles are the ministers or the 12 princes who rule justly. Dr. Abner Chow points out that the Old Testament prophets are often more precise, literal, and expansive in what they understood and what they taught than many assume. Because here in Isaiah, the Lord had revealed to Isaiah that the Messiah is going to have a cabinet of ministers, or as we would put it, or princes as the ancient world would put it. And the apostles will be his helpers, his assistants in his divine government in the millennial kingdom. So if you're frustrated with the government, just wait, just wait. Just wait. It may not be this election, but... It will come. And the one who is coming as king will not be elected by men. He has been granted the kingdom by the Father. Well, what will the reign of the Messianic king and his princes, the apostles, be like? Chapter 32, verses 1 through 4. Pick it up in verse 2. So the king's going to reign righteously, the princes will rule justly, and each, that is the apostles, each will be like a refuge from the wind and a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry country, like the shade of a rock in a parched land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be blinded, the ears of those who hear will listen, the mind of the hasty will discern the truth, and the tongue of the stammers will hasten to speak clearly. No longer will the fool be called noble or the rogue be spoken of as generous. There's going to be a righteous and just rule. But I want you to notice then that a transition comes in chapter 32 from the future tense in verses 1 through 5 to a present tense in verses 6 and following. Pick it up in verse 6. It says, 
for a fool speaks nonsense. So now the tense has shifted from the future to the present. Isaiah is shifting from what the Messiah and the apostolic princes will do in the millennial kingdom to what's happening now in his time. And he says, for a fool speaks nonsense and his heart inclines toward wickedness to practice ungodliness and to speak error against the Lord, to keep the hungry person unsatisfied, to withhold drink from the thirsty. As for a rogue, his weapons are evil. He devises wicked schemes to destroy the afflicted with slander, even though the needy one speaks what is right. But the noble man devises noble plans, and by noble plans he stands. And he gives a warning. Rise up, you women who are at his ease, and give and hear my voice give ear to my word you complacent daughters within a year and a few days you will be troubled O complacent daughters and he's saying the invasion is coming and he says it's coming quick in a year and a few days this discipline of the Lord is going to come upon you that discipline is continued to be described in verse 14 it says the palace has been abandoned, the populated city forsaken, hill and watchtower have forever become caves, a delight for wild donkeys, a pasture for flocks. The discipline is coming. But notice the glorious word in verse 15, and it is the word until. So now he's gonna move back to the future. He begins the chapter by saying, look, I'm gonna tell you how it ends. I'm gonna start by telling you how it ends. There's gonna be a king and princes who rule justly. And he says, of course, right now, there's rogues, there's violent rogues and rebels and wicked people who are doing awful, terrible things and that's gonna continue and there's gonna be all of these troubles and hardships until, and verse 15 says until. Until what? Until the Holy Spirit is poured out upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fertile field and the fertile field is considered a forest then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness will abide in the fertile field and the work of righteousness will be peace and the service of righteousness, quietness and confidence forever. Then my people will live in a peaceful habitation and in secure dwellings and in undisturbed resting places. And it will hail when the force comes down and the city will be utterly laid low. How blessed will you be, you who sow beside all waters, who let out freely the ox and the donkey. And by now you're like, okay, I totally lost it at letting out the ox and the donkey. Let me just make it very simple for you. Right now, where there are thieves, right, and, and, and by the right now, I'm talking about Isaiah's right now. When there's a possibility you let out your ox or donkey, a thief could take it, a wild animal could kill it, or an invading army, a raider could come and, 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 and steal it from you. You can't just let out your ox and the donkey. He's saying, but when Messiah comes, you'll be able to just let your personal property roam free. No one will touch it because there will be no thieves, there will be no oppressors, and there will be no robbers. There is coming a deliverance for, for Israel. So I want to point out just from this passage, who initiates the kingdom. What is the kingdom like and where will people live in the kingdom? Well, who initiates the kingdoms? Sorry, post-millennialists, but it does not say that the kingdom is brought in by man. It says it comes when the spirit is poured out from on high. This is a kingdom which comes from on high, not something we do down here. I also want to Say sorry, charismatics, because verse 15 says the Spirit is poured out from on high. 
He's not beckoned from below. He's poured out on us from above. We can't beckon him. He is not at our beck and call. He is poured out. In fact, Jesus said the spirit is like the wind. You don't know where he's coming and where he's going. Well, what will the kingdom be like? So who initiates the kingdom? It's the Lord. What will the kingdom be like? Verse 16 says that justice and righteousness will characterize the kingdom. So much so that even in the wilderness and the fields, people will be secure from crime and injustice. They'll be able to let their flocks just roam free because no thief will take them, even if they're not accompanied. Verse 17 says that the work which is done during the kingdom will be works of righteousness and the result of that work will be peace quietness and confidence forever talk about job satisfaction in the millennial kingdom people will do productive work and that work when they when 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 you ask someone well what do you do what do you do in the millennial kingdom they'll they'll say i do the works of righteousness and what's your job satisfaction like well i have peace quietness and confidence forever that's what it will be like. Well, where, where will people live in the kingdom? Verse 18 says they will live in a peaceful habitation. They will dwell in secure dwellings and in undisturbed resting places. You, they won't have to lock their door at night. In other words, the world will no longer be plagued by war. People will live in real houses. They will enjoy true safety and security and they will be able to rest at night free from any threat of violence or oppression for one reason, one reason only because Messiah reigns and his government will be righteous and will rule in justice. The Messiah is going to bring global and societal peace in his thousand-year reign. And so the point of chapters 31 and 32 is that it is the Lord, not any human power, that is going to bring this about. So stop trusting in mankind. Don't trust in human numbers or human strength. They cannot save. Put your trust in the Lord, for he alone can save you. Well, that brings us then to the sixth and the final woe in chapters 33 and 34, and I am going to make it. Wow, miracles happen. The last woe is woe to the tyrannical rulers in chapter 31. Woe to you, O destroyer, while you were not destroyed, and he who is treacherous while others did not deal treacherously with him. As soon as you finish destroying, you will be destroyed. As soon as you cease to deal treacherously, others will deal treacherously with you. And then chapter 34 goes on to describe the whole chapter of of verse 34. It talks about God's judgment on the wicked nations. Back in chapter 10, God had called Assyria the rod of my anger, an instrument that he was going to use to discipline his wayward children. But if you remember back in chapter 10, he also says, after this rod has accomplished my purpose, I'm going to judge the rod. Like someone who takes a rod to accomplish a task and then throws the stick into the fire, God is going to use the wicked Assyrians to punish his people, but then he'll deal with the wickedness of the Assyrians themselves. As soon as you finish destroying, you will be destroyed. As soon as you cease to deal treacherously, others will deal treacherously with you. This is a prophecy of God's judgment on the Assyrians. And in verses two through four, Isaiah prays for that day to come. He says, O Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Be our strength every morning, our salvation also in the time of distress. At the sound of the tumults, peoples flee. At the lifting up of yourself, nations disperse. Your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers, as locusts rushing about, men rush about on it. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells 
on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness and he will be the stability of your times. A wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. What a glorious passage. I want to focus in on that statement in verses 5 and 6. The Lord is exalted for he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. And listen to this, verse 6. And he will be the stability of your times. I, I just love this phrase. Everyone is saying and everyone is feeling our times are so turbulent. Things are just so topsy-turvy and changing so fast and all of these various evils are just all over the place and every day it's something new and it's like a storm. You're just feeling tossed about and everybody's being filled with anxiety because it just seems like there's no stability. There's nothing you can count on. Everything changes. Nothing is stable. Can I just tell you, in the midst of that storm, there is a rock. And that rock is immovable because he is immutable. Immutable means God doesn't change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The scripture says, I, the Lord your God, changeth not. So in the midst of turbulent times of the topsy-turvy world of men, you have to get your life and your heart on the rock, the stable rock, the one that can't be moved. The waves of evil dash against that rock and they do not budge it even a millimeter. And there I am using the right way to measure distance, not the English way. It's not an inch, it's a millimeter. He will be the stability of your times. Do you have anxiety? Because each day you're like, what's going to happen? What could happen? You need to get out of the waves and onto the rock. He will be the stability of your times. I want you to also notice just verses 13 and 15. Such a powerful passage. You who are far away, hear what I have done. And you who are near, acknowledge my might. Sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can live with the consuming fire? And you're like, oh, that's that, this whole wrath of God thing, that's so Old Testament. Oh, really? Notice that the book of Hebrews cites this verse. Our God is a consuming fire. Who among us can live with continual burning? Well, here's the answer, verse 15. He who walks righteously and speaks with sincerity he who rejects unjust gain and shakes his hand so that they hold no bribe. He who stops his ears from hearing about bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking upon evil. How are you and I doing on that list? Do you walk righteously? Do you speak with sincerity? Do you pass up opportunities to make money in unethical ways? Do you guard what your ears, he, ears hear and what your eyes see? Notice, though, the incredible promises and blessings. Verses 16 and 17. He will dwell on the heights. His refuge will be the impregnable rock. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. They will behold a far distant land. Your heart will meditate on terror, but you will see he says in verse 22, 
that you need not fear, he says, because in verse 22, for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Verse 21 says that he is the majestic one. He will be for us, and then he describes a peaceful harbor. The Lord is our judge. He's our lawgiver. He is our king. He will save us. And verse 24 says this, no resident will say I am sick. The people who dwell there, that is in the Messian kingdom, will be forgiven their iniquity. This is the gospel hope of the scriptures. The gospel hope of every believer, as Paul says in Romans 1, of the Jew first, but also of the Gentiles who have been grafted into these messianic promises. Well, how does the section end? I want to end by just reading to you chapter 35. This section, which has had six warnings of woe, ends with wonder. The wonder of what God is going to do when the Messiah comes and establishes his kingdom. Verse 35, verse 1. The wilderness and the desert will be glad, and the Araba will rejoice and blossom. If you've been to Israel, man, there is a lot of sand. And you're like, man, this is the promised land flowing with milk and honey. You haven't seen what it was, but you will see what it will be. The Araba will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. I love that phrase. It will rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. It's like there's not enough human words to describe how glorious and how joyful this will be. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. So encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. By the way, this is cited by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, admonish the unruly. Encourage, Isaiah says in verse three, encourage the exhausted, strengthen the feeble. Are you exhausted? Are you tired? Be encouraged. Be strengthened. Verse four, say to those with an anxious heart, and here I am saying it, take courage, fear not. That's not my words to you. These are the Lord's words to you. If you have an anxious heart, take courage and fear not. A while back, Dr. Monroe came and preached on that phrase, fear not, and so hear it with his Scottish brogue, fear not. Behold, your God will come. He will come with vengeance. He, he'll judge the wicked. You don't have to take revenge. He will judge. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. The scorched land will become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, its resting place, grass becomes reeds and rushes. A highway will be there, a roadway, and it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way, and fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor will any vicious beast go up on it. These will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there. 
And the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion, with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. This is glorious. What is the future of God's people, Israel? Verse nine, they will be redeemed. They will be, verse 10, ransomed. They will, it says, return, and then they will rejoice. Redeemed, ransomed, returned, and rejoicing. And you're like, well, wait a minute, bread. You just kind of stole our thunder. Here we thought this was for us. And you said, no, this is for the people of Israel. It is for the people of Israel. This promise is given to them. Why should it matter to you? Because you will see it. And you will be the welcoming committee. The church is raptured. There's the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven during the tribulation period while God pours out his wrath on this world. But then when Christ returns, the second coming, we will come with him, riding with the armies of heaven. And the New Testament says that we too will rule and reign with him. You see, the apostles are the princes who will sit on the 12 thrones, but the church will also be part of that glorious government. And we will be the ones that welcome and rejoice with Israel as they come on the highway of holiness into Zion through the desert which has blossomed with flowers like, like you've never seen before. And we will be there when the redeemed walk there, the ransomed of the Lord return. They come with joyful shouting to Zion. You will hear that shout. They will come with everlasting joy on their heads. They will find joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing will flee away and you will be there to see it. If you are a born again believer. Praise the Lord. So let the anxious heart remember the Lord is on high. And he's coming again. Lord, I pray that you would encourage the exhausted, that you would strengthen the feeble, and that for every anxious heart, your word would ring in their souls saying, take heart, fear not, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. We give you praise for all that you have done, are doing, and will do. In Jesus' name, amen.